the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee, and as usual, I'm joined by the co-hosts Lee Johnson and Jason Reed, and today we are talking about thought leaders. But before we do that, as usual, we're going to take drink orders and see what you all are ranting or raving about. Jason, let me start with you. I'm going to have a Troeg's Master of Pumpkins Ale. Of course you are. (laughs) Which is brewed with real pumpkins. And we introduced this new trick where you do a little rim of sugar and cinnamon for maximum seasonal taste. It's, It's really good. I'm going to rant about overdressed dogs. I see a lot of people putting sweaters on dogs that don't need sweaters. Many dogs have light coats, but a lot of dogs have a big fluffy coat. And you see these dogs and they're just panting and they're stuck in this sweater. And it's really tragic to see an overdressed dog because someone has a nice doggy sweater (laughs) and they just want their dog to wear it. Lee, what about you? I'm just going to have two fingers of whiskey with A-Rock. And today I am raving about Dedrick Flynn. He is a TikTok creator. He goes by the handle Daddy Fat Stacks for telling us the true story about Girl Scouts. Boy Scouts only teach you how to be homeless. Meanwhile, Girl Scouts teach you how to move a superior product in any neighborhood. You think it's a coincidence that 90% of successful women are all Girl Scouts? It's the biggest gang in the world. Ever since my niece became a Girl Scout, doors been opening up for me. I know she moving stuff around. You think? Queen of England, Girl Scout, Taylor Swift, Girl Scout, Venus and Serena Williams. You guys not seeing it? Your first Girl Scout ever was Sally Mae, and now she do student loans. You think it's a coincidence? Them cookie games is real. <laughs> Okay, so there's a lot of complaints that one could make about the Girl Scouts. I was a brownie and then a Girl Scout, but I love this. I mean, it's so true. The cookie game is real. So And the Boy Scouts only train you to be homeless. <laughs> well, I mean, poor Boy Scouts. So today we are very lucky to be joined by a very special guest, Chris Long, a research foundation professor at Michigan State University. He's the dean of the College of Arts and Letters and the dean of the MSU Honors Program. He's also a professor of philosophy. He's written extensively on ancient Greek philosophy, Reiner Sherman, and public philosophy. But most relevant to our listeners is that he's written collaboratively with Rick for almost 20 years. Way to go, guys. (laughs) He's been an early proponent of the use of technology in research, writing, and publication of philosophical work. And while we have thrown deans under the bus quite a bit on this podcast, (laughs) if there have to be deans, they should be like Chris Long. So Chris, first of all, welcome to Hotel Bar Podcast. And second, what are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, it's so great to be here. Thank you, Lee. I will have a dirty martini up with Hendrix gin. That is what I am in the mood for today. And what I'm raving about is the National Humanities Conference that I was just at in Indianapolis. 
you know, there's a lot of news out there about the humanities and humanities in crisis. Well, I was just in Indianapolis with about 800 humanists who are doing unbelievable work. And it was just heartening to be with a group of people who were bringing their scholarship into the world in a way that makes a meaningful difference for them. So it was great to be there. Nice. Nice. Rick, what about you? What are you drinking? What are you ranting or raving about? Today, I'm going to have a Resurrected by Vikings from Solemn Oath Brewery. It's their Imperial Milk Stout. God, you guys in your beers. <laughs> well, <laughs> it turns out Solemn Oath is just right around the corner from where I live. And so come on, Solemn Oath, pay up. <laughs> and today, I have a double rave, but the main rave is Tootsie Tominets. <laughs> I heard about Tootsie Tominets, who is the pit master at Snow's Barbecue in Lexington, Texas. Snow's Barbecue was named by Texas Monthly Magazine the number one barbecue place in Texas. And if you've ever been to Texas, there is a shit ton of barbecue places there. And Snow's was named the number one, and she's the pit master. She's 88 years old. Snows is only open on Saturday. During the week, she's a custodian at the local high school. And then at one o'clock on Saturday morning, she wakes up, starts the fires burning, and she masters those pits all day long. I heard about her, and this is the second rave, through the Netflix series Chef's Table Barbecue. She was in the first episode of that series and just an amazing, amazing story. So, Lee, I know that we're talking about thought leaders today, but how are we going to approach this? Okay, well, first disclaimer, we're not really talking about thought leaders. We chose thought leaders as the title of this episode for SEO reasons, but we are kind of still talking about thought leaders, but not the ones that you're thinking of, not the yahoos that get out there and do a startup and pretend to be influencing the public discourse. We're talking about philosophers. And actually, this week's topic is the result of an actual conversation in an actual hotel bar. <laughs> so recently, the Society for Phenomenology and Existential Philosophy, SPEP, met at their annual meeting, and Rick and I met up with Chris Long, our guest today, at the bar. And we started talking about whether podcasting should be judged by university administrators as a contribution to philosophical scholarship. Now, I'm pretty sure all of us here agree that it should, although we might have slightly different arguments about why. But like all good hotel bar conversations, this one that Rick and Chris and I were having moved to a larger question of how it is that faculty in general and philosophy faculty in particular contribute to knowledge, to the university and to society, and how those contributions should be judged by administrators. We're all tenured faculty here, but we all still have to give an annual account of our activities, usually in the areas of research, teaching, and service to the university, to the department, and sometimes to the community. These reports are then used by administrators to dole out measly morsels <laughs> in the form of salary increases or course reductions or things like that. But they also tell us as faculty what the university, or at least the administrators, think is important about what we do. And this has an impact on how we spend our time and could have a profound impact on what academic philosophy looks like. Just to give an example, 
if podcasting does not count as a contribution to philosophical scholarship or research, then those of us who do it are basically taking time away from areas that do count. And it's important to note, and sorry for using you as an example, Rick, but we reach more listeners than the readers of all three of Rick's books, <laughs> multiplied exponentially <laughs> combined. Are there better ways to see the contributions of philosophy's faculty and value the work that reaches wider audiences like this? So today we're going to be talking about how to be good thought leaders, how philosophers contribute, and ways to value their important contributions. As I said, the motivation for this particular episode came up in this conversation that Rick, Chris, and I were having at the hotel bar at the most recent SPEP conference, and it actually followed a panel session on podcasting and philosophy. Now, Rick was there, and so he can you know weigh in on this, but I was surprised that the other panelists didn't seem to be particularly on board with the idea of counting philosophy podcasts as publishing, as research. And so I want to just kind of go around the bar here and see how each of our institutions value or don't value work like this, work like what we do on hotel bar sessions. So, Chris, you're our visitor. How do you value that work? Well, personally, as a scholar, I valued podcasting in my own work, as both you, Lee, and Rick know. I produced the Digital Dialogue podcast back in 2006, 2007, before podcasting was really a thing. I did that as I was writing my book on Socratic and Platonic political philosophy, and I invited people whose work I was reading, their essays, to come onto the podcast. And it wasn't as sophisticated as you all have it here on the hotel bar sessions. I mean... <laughs> We didn't have special microphones. You know, I had a Zoom microphone and I turned it on between us if we were in person or if we were online. I was using Skype at the time. What I found was a couple of things. One was I prepared for the podcast in a much more robust way because I knew I was going to have to respond to the author of the essay that I had invited them on to talk about, which was really important for my book writing and whatever chapter I was working on. The second thing was that the conversation was much more robust because we knew it was going to be posted online and we knew that it was going to be publicly accessible in some meaningful way. And I think I made 75 or so of those podcasts and they're still on my website, cplong.org, I should mention. <laughs> but they are some of the best conversations I've had, I think, as a scholar, as a philosopher, as a person. And it's partly because the act of inviting someone to talk about their work. You know, they didn't come to talk about my work. They come to talk about their work. And then putting a microphone in front of us to make sure that the work was going to be publicly accessible really was transformative, I think, for the work that I was doing at the time. So let me be more pointed with my question, Dean Long. <laughs> okay. How does your institution value that work? Yeah. So I think we got to this point in the conversation at the bar. This question really animates a lot of the work that I do as a dean. As an institution at Michigan State, we say we value public scholarship. We say we value interdisciplinary work. 
We say we value diversity, equity, and inclusion, and yet the lived experience of our faculty is so often to have to fight to create the spaces for that kind of work. We hire them to come and do that work, and then all of a sudden they're in conversations about, you know, well, this doesn't count as philosophy when they're out in the community really working with meaningful relationships with partners in the community. So when I started out as a dean, I began to see this as an acute problem, as a source of the cynicism that we see across higher education. And I had faculty members, particularly members from diverse backgrounds, our BIPOC faculty, who were coming in and saying, you know, I'm doing this amazing work in the community with partners there. I'm bringing students into the community. I'm publishing about my work in the community. And when I get into the annual review conversation, all they ask about is, well, does this count as teaching or is this research or is this service? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. it was a complete pulling apart of something that was organic and meaningful. So what we've done over the past seven, eight years in the College of Arts and Letters is shift the categories that we use for tenure and promotion. So no longer are we asking teaching, research, and service. We're asking people how they share knowledge, how they expand opportunity, and how they do mentorship and stewardship. And what we've seen is that that allows for people to give a much more holistic and robust account of the work that they're doing. And when you think about sharing knowledge, whether you're sharing it through a podcast or through a published article or through a documentary film, it's a way of sharing knowledge. And it's part of the value the university places in making knowledge public. Now, I also then take that another level to say, okay, are you making that knowledge openly accessible? Are you publishing in open access journals? Are you publishing and podcasts that make it open to a wider audience. So this is an effort to put my weight on the side of insisting that the university live out the values it says it cares most deeply about. We're going to talk more about the specific model that MSU has employed, but I do want to hear from Rick and Jason about how their institutions treat work like this. Before I go to you, Rick, just real quick for our listeners, when Chris says BIPOC, that is an acronym for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. So when he's talking about BIPOC faculty, that's what he means. So Rick, what about you? How does DePaul deal with things like philosophy podcasts? We don't yet included as part of our research. So when I do my annual evaluations, even though I put it under research, it's mentioned by the chair of the department and by the dean under service. And this is considered to be service either to the community or to the profession, but it is not considered to be research, which, if we're all honest, makes a big difference because in an institution like mine, research and teaching are weighed much more heavily than services. Mm -hmm. I do enough service as it is, and so that this is counted as service shows that it's discounted. Yeah, I remember when I was at my first job, which is a SLAC, they said, yeah, you're going to be judged in three categories, research, teaching, and service. And you should think of them this way, 50%, 50%, and 20%. <laughs> so when Lee talks about SLAC, she means small liberal arts college. There yes, you go. thank you. Yeah, small liberal arts college. All right, Jason, we're to you now. I mean, I list it personally as service, like under community kind of service, which is also the service my university's least interested in seeing. Because... 
when they say service, they really mean, are you on some onerous committee that meets on a regular basis and has meetings that could have been emailed? I'm looking at you, faculty handbook committee. But I've always tried to make the community service a big part of what I do. For years, I had a philosophy and film series I did with a local gallery where we showed documentaries about philosophy and had talks afterwards. And so for me, podcasting is a continuation of that work. I'm kind of okay with that. I'm kind of okay with it being seen as a service. I see myself as someone who teaches at a state institution. Part of my job is bringing philosophy to the public, which is why if anyone asks me to come speak at something, I'm there, usually. Mm-hmm. And I try and make that a part of what I do because I think that I work for like the people of Maine and the broader community beyond that as well. Lee, what about you? Well, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I feel very lucky to be in a department where both my chairperson and my dean are very interested in this kind of work and make a point to value it even more than I think I do in my own annual self-evaluations, which, by the way, we have to do at my institution. But yeah, my dean and my chair both make arguments that There's no reason to not count this as research. It is publishing. It requires the same amount of time for preparatory work, for editing work that writing or publishing in monographs or peer-reviewed journals would, and also that it most importantly has a much larger reach than any monograph or peer-reviewed article that I would publish would. I think the sticking point is it's not easy to demonstrate how it's Mm peer-reviewed. We all know the problems with peer review in academia, which are many and varied. But I think that we would all agree that there is an element of peer review that's really important to maintaining quality or at least truth in the kinds of things that we put out there. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's really the the sticking point. I don't want to take a deep in the weeds conversation about how faculty are evaluated and then plunge us even deeper into the weeds. Mm. But I think, Lee, your point is a really important one because the reason why peer review is important for us as faculty members is it's supposed to signify that the research I've done and that I'm submitting for publication is contributing to the field is of the highest quality, and you even said, and is true. But I think we need to talk about the way in which the peer review system is being overwhelmed. And this is in all disciplines, not just philosophy, because if everyone needs to publish on dead trees in order to get tenure and promotion, then there's a lot more publications than there ever were before. Now people in graduate school are encouraged to publish already then, and we just don't have enough people to peer review them. And we've seen in the sciences, falsehoods and frauds are slipping past the peer review process. In an era when peer review seems to be a manifest failure, I think we do undergo a form of peer review. That is, people listen to us or they don't. They Mm -hmm. cancel their subscriptions or they subscribe. That is a review of the work that is being produced in a podcast. 
Yeah, I was going to add that you certainly could ask somebody to do an external review of the podcast and have them write something up about that. So that's certainly feasible. But I wanted to get back to the point you were making, Rick, about the exhaustion of peer review and the fact that here's another activity, peer review that is, that is not made legible to the system of evaluation that we have in higher education. You can say I've reviewed three articles for these journals, but it really doesn't get recognized in the way that it should for how important it is. I mean, when you have a good experience with peer review in your work, it makes the work better. And actually, this is what's at the heart of the public philosophy journal that I edit, is the idea that the review, which is not anonymous, should be formative. I mean, I imagine our friendship, Rick, I imagine giving you feedback. And I feel like because we have trust in our relationship, I can say harder things to you about, you know, what might be in your paper. And so nurturing the relationship between the reviewers and the creators of the artifacts of scholarship, and I'm using that term because I don't necessarily think it's an author of a written piece. It may be a podcast that we're reviewing together, is really important. And the delusion that that under an anonymous review process, we would get to some kind of objective evaluation of a piece is, I think, outmoded. I also want to mention another fault of the current peer review system that I don't think gets enough attention, which is that one of the things that the current peer review system is supposed to regulate is whether or not someone is making a meaningful contribution to a topic or a conversation or an area of research. And obviously, I mean, it seems obvious to me, if you choose experts in a field to decide what a meaningful contribution to that field is, that you're automatically closing off anyone who might want to forward that field or change the boundaries of what counts as a meaningful conversation. And so I don't think that I'm alone in saying that a lot of what we read in peer-reviewed journals is rehashing of things that have, you know, been published many times before with very minor alterations. And it gets a little exasperating at some point. I mean, for how many years did feminist philosophers have to answer the question, is this philosophy? Yeah, right. I I mean, it's just ridiculous. But if I could just come back to one of the things that was embedded in Rick's question, which is that this is not a very eco-friendly way to do (laughs) academia, right? Yeah. And I think there's also a larger point to be made here that Jeff Jarvis who's a professor of journalism at City University of New York, has been arguing, namely, that we've really been living in what scholars call the Gutenberg parenthesis. That (laughs) is, printing was invented just such a short time ago, and we may be witnessing the end of print as an important medium. And then what does scholarship look like when print is no longer as important as it used to be. You know, there's something to think about there. Our students, I think, have a much easier time critically appreciating video products and images and short form text than they do a long scholarly essay. I mean, I agree in some sense that there's a crisis around print. And I think part of the issue, as it's been explained to me, is that 
You know, for a long time, academic departments used a book as if it was a standard from on high. Like, if you had enough interesting ideas, a book contract came down from the sky to you. And really, that's not how books work. There's a whole economics. And even though academic presses, a lot of them are subsidized by their universities and so on, there's an economics there. And that economics has been unraveling because... You know, you've been to your university library, they're buying less books, investing more in co-reading spaces, spending more time subscribing to online sources and so on. And so there's an economic pressure that's pushing the book out as a standard. But I'm going to defend the book in certain ways. You guys were talking about peer review earlier. And I'll have to say my experience has been that the peer reviews I get for books are incredibly more helpful Mm -hmm. than the peer reviews Mm -hmm. I get for articles. I think because a book is long enough that it makes its own justification, and no one has ever said to me with a book, what about X? What about X in the sense of read my work or read someone's work I think you should consider? I think the responses I get for a book have been, oh my God, that's going to make the book better. Mm -hmm. Where some of the responses I get for articles are like, oh, I'm just satisfying someone's weird arbitrary standard or they don't like the fact that I didn't cite them or something. So I do think that books have a better peer review process. And then, I mean, there's a longer conversation here about what happens when you read a book versus what happens when you read an online piece. I get worried that a lot of my colleagues seem to be assigning, and I assign a lot of PDFs and online texts that I make available, but I try to include with every class at least a book, and I try to justify it. It's cheap. We're going to read the whole thing or most of the whole thing, but I do think there's something to be said for just getting away from the screen and having that space and that relationship to a thought developing in a different way. I mean, the temporality of a book as Bernard Siegler talks about it, the book is read on your time. You know, if you stop and you need to rethink something, you can do that. Whereas, especially a video or an audio recording, you're on its time. You're kind of stuck processing it that way. And I think of a book as slow scholarship. Mm. And I think of podcasting and this sort of stuff is fast. Like we're responding to things as they're happening. A book takes time to develop and it takes time to read. And there's something to be said for that. I really like this conversation about slow scholarship. It's really important for us to think about, especially in a culture that values a certain kind of productivity. I wonder about, you know, focusing our attention on the media through which the scholarship is expressed as opposed to the kind of scholarship that's engaged. So I like to think of long-form peer-review scholarship, whether that's a book or a website that is robust and has a lot of research behind it, a documentary film. There's something very important as you mentioned, Jason, I think about long-form scholarship. The time that you have to unroll an idea or to luxuriate in a set of ideas is really important, both from an academic standpoint, but I also think in terms of deepening our understanding of the world. So if we can move away from just focusing on the materiality, maybe, of the scholarship, although that too is important, because I like the point Mm -hmm. that you're making, the book being on our own time, I feel like I have some of that with reading articles in Zotero, which I read digitally, even though it's a printed text. So Lee, you say print is out. I feel like digital print is going to be in for a long time, you know? Yeah, no, I meant tree prints. Tree prints. Well, and then that brings the other point, which I think we should talk about is, 
you know, producing a podcast and hosting a podcast is not environmentally neutral. <laughs> and so, exactly. you know, all of this right. yeah. does impact the environment, some more obviously than others. Yeah, as I'm fond of saying, those bits live somewhere. <laughs> right. And the place where they live gets really freaking yeah. hot. There is no cloud. <laughs> it's just somebody else's computer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I could just maybe say that, as in most evaluative systems, it is the case that when they work, it's great. Yeah. But we also have to look at what happens when they don't work. And I think that one of the things, and just kind of hearkening back to something that Chris said earlier, is that, yeah, it's great when peer reviews for monographs work. They produce really great monographs and really great conversations prior to the production of the actual monograph. But when they don't work, that's three people who spent all that time you know, mm-hmm. reading a book and one person that spent all that time writing a book right. who have basically, at least in the eyes of the university's evaluative structure, wasted time, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not counting rewrites and edits and all of those. But I mean, I guess I would say you're pointing to the reason why I've really tried to focus on formative review rather than evaluative. Obviously, some evaluations have to happen. But if we can think of the work that we're doing as formative, it really aligns much more effectively with the learning mission of a university. So it's not about you're in or you're out, this is great or this is not great. It's about, okay, what has been produced, what has been presented, and are we working together to make it better, to make it stronger? Have you considered this point? And I feel like that approach is much more productive in a meaningful way. And then also, I think it's more aligned with the mission of the institutions that we're part of. But I think, Chris, you broach a really important issue here. The academic books that I have written and published, or the scholarly articles that I or we have written and published, as we've been pointing out over and over again, reach an incredibly small audience. And the contribution I'm making there is to the scientific community that is interested in these three sentences and Duns Scotus's proof for the existence of God. <laughs> now, since I think a lot about that proof for the existence of God, I think that the contribution I'm making is important. And I don't want to say that we should curtail the pursuit of knowledge mm-hmm. in these kinds of directions. But I think what a podcast does is it brings philosophical scholarship to the public, not a small audience in the scientific community. And I think that has a number of consequences. One consequence is that the public, that is those who are not academic philosophers, can see that philosophy has tools that might help analyze, criticize, and otherwise think about issues of importance in everyone's life and in our life in common. And it also shows the public we can do something with philosophy. That is, it does something important in the community, in the body politic, sort of in an old Socratic model where philosophy was done in public. And I think that is as important as the slow scholarship that I produce in the books that I have written. And I'm very proud of them. Mm-hmm. But you know, the five people who have read them. Four of whom are here. (laughs) And the other one was intensely critical and says I should kill myself. (laughs) 
you know, one of the things I think a lot about, Rick, in line with what you're just saying, is how are we expanding the scope of what we call scholarship? So yes, we want the deep, slow analysis of Duns Scotus or some text that we find important, but we also want the podcast, we want the documentary film, we want the engagement with communities in ways that make those communities more just and beautiful. But when we have such a narrow conception of scholarship, it's either the book or a journal article that's published in some subset of journals that only count as excellent. We're limiting ourselves. But can I say, I think there's another point, and let me use Lee as an example. So let's say she's writing an essay or preparing a podcast on AI. It's not that Lee is just reading a bunch of blogs and newspaper articles. When Lee then comes to speak about these things, the entire wealth of her philosophical knowledge and all of this reading that she does in, let's say, Derrida or feminist theory or even Kant, for that matter, comes to bear on everything that is said even in the podcast format. And so the scholarship that's done is comparable. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, that's why I listen to hotel bar sessions. <laughs> I mean, we've been working with this model of slow versus fast, which I do like. But the other thing that came up in Rick's conversation is I think about the fact that there are certain conversations you can have when addressing a group of people who are already invested in the same sort of question. Rick gave the, yeah. the example of feminist philosophy. Like, there's a work you can do in feminist philosophy when you move beyond should feminist philosophy exist, does it exist, is patriarchy a real thing? Like, all those sort of feminism 101 questions. Once you've answered those and you can ask different questions, those are questions addressed to a group of people who share a set of presuppositions, right? And I think that when you're doing a certain kind of philosophical work, you were working with people, like even the Duns-Scottis example, the presupposition that talking about proofs of existence of God is worthwhile, that Duns-Scottis is not a dunce, etc., all these things. <laughs> uh, and then there's talking in a different way to people who don't have a shared set of presuppositions. To me, that's part of what public philosophy is, is you are working without the presuppositions of a special discipline or a special figure. Mm. And it is trickier, but they are two very different sets of skills, and I think they are both worthwhile. And I would go on to say that you can do one because you do the other. Yeah, and I would add to that that the sophistication of being able to make difficult ideas accessible to the public is significant. So, you know, I think about this and my colleague Mark Fisher used to say this too, just like we can make food that's healthy and also tastes good, you can make ideas publicly accessible and sophisticated. Mm -hmm. So it's not a question of dumbing down ideas. It's a question of finding the vocabulary that you need to make the idea accessible to a broader public. Yeah, it's just like finding that umami in Dunscotus. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that Hotel Bar Podcast is more than just a podcast? We are a fully online, cross-brand, synergy platform of content creation. Actually, that's not true. Those words are meaningless. But you can follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can find the handles of all the co-hosts as well. You can follow us all or pick your favorite. If by the time you hear this, Elon Musk has burned down the servers to collect the insurance... You can also find us on Facebook or YouTube. 
Just look for Hotel Bar Sessions. Wherever you find us on social media, you can contact us with ideas, complaints, and questions. You can also email us anytime at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or visit our interactive page at hotelbarpodcast.com. No matter how you get in contact with us, we're always glad to hear from you. Chris, earlier on, you mentioned that Michigan State, or I think the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State, has developed a different model of evaluating faculty. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your model and how it differs from this common model of looking at teaching, research, and service or from whatever model was in the college before you arrived there? Yes, the College of Arts and Letters has historically had a very traditional model. In fact, we have appointments, really, that look at how much teaching, research, and service you do. It's 40-40-20 teaching and research are 40% each, and then 20% service. And what we were finding was that a number of our junior faculty colleagues in particular were frustrated by that structure because they were experiencing an organically holistic approach to scholarship in ways that was tearing it apart. So what I mean by that is we have faculty who are out in communities working with local communities, let's say around food issues, for example, and they're teaching a course on food, they're writing about food, justice, and things like that, and yet when they get into the conversation about their research that year, they're having trouble explaining that, no, the class was in the community, we were doing work with the food bank, you know, (laughs) well, is that teaching? Yeah, of course it's teaching. Well, is it research? Yes, of course it's research. Is it service? Well, yeah, it has a service dimension to it, too. So, We decided what we wanted to do or needed to do was find a more holistic way of addressing this work and to actually try to move from what I think of maybe as more means-focused categories to ends-focused categories. So rather than teaching research and service, we're looking at sharing knowledge, expanding opportunity, and mentorship and stewardship. Sharing knowledge, I think, is pretty straightforward. It can happen in a variety of different forms. And what I appreciate about the model is that you can be very traditional in your scholarship. You can share knowledge through book writing or through journal publishing, and that's terrific. Or you could share knowledge through writing an op-ed in a newspaper or through podcasting or through documentary film. So it does open up the space. The expanding opportunity category is really important to pull us out from our own sort of self-interested modality, which is, I think, reinforced often and incentivized in the academy. And it's really designed to ask, how have you helped others succeed? Have you invited undergraduates to be on a panel with you at a conference? Have you nominated your colleagues for awards, for example? Have you worked with the community to get a grant for them for what they need? Those kinds of things things that expand opportunity for others, which again aligns with the stated values of universities, but don't often resonate with the lived experience of our faculty and staff and students. And then the mentorship stewardship piece is designed to try to make legible the work that is done by so many of our faculty to help their colleagues succeed, whether that be navigating the tenure process, working on their teaching, publishing something, or putting a conference together. So the mentorship that comes with that 
I take the stewardship also very seriously. Obviously, as a dean, I have committed my life to nurturing institutions that should allow for this kind of work. And um, what... that's not obvious as no. a dean. <laughs> okay, <Sorry>. fair, fair. <laughs> okay. Uh, He's like, as a very singularly weird dean. I know, I okay, appreciate that. I mean, you know, but we're talking earlier in the podcast about service, and there is a laudable dimension of service, which is around creating the conditions for others to succeed. When I moved over to the administrative life, I began to see that as a faculty member, I was getting rewarded for my successes. And as an administrator, you get rewarded for the success of others, the things you empower others to do. And that's really at the heart of some of this work. And then what happens with this system, it's not just the changing of the categories that's important. It's also the process that we put in place with this. So when a new faculty comes to join the college, we ask them to imagine themselves retiring. What will they have been known for? Mm. What will they be known for when they do that? And that's kind of sets the horizon goals. And those goals change over the course of a career, obviously. But then we ask, okay, well, what would be the milestone indicators that you're on the way to those horizon goals? And those become the milestones for success and for promotion and tenure in the college. And those are set in dialogue with the chairs and with the dean's office. And then we say, okay, in the next year or so, what are the stepping stones that would move you in the direction of those milestones? And maybe it's something like, you know, building trust with a local community because that's the area that the work is going to be so important for. So that process becomes really critical. No longer do we say, okay, come to the university and now you have to orient all of your goals to our values and our system. We're actually in a dialogue with you about how are we empowering you to do meaningful work that also aligns with the work that we envision ourselves doing in the department or in the college. So it seems like there are two sides to this on the one hand, you said the new process wants to acknowledge the work that faculty are already doing. But it seems to me the other side is I tried to make the point earlier that the values we have in looking at teaching, research, and scholarship have a real-world concrete impact on what it is that each faculty member does. And so I'm wondering, is there a kind of action or workflow or life that you think this new process is trying to encourage in individual faculty members? Yes. I mean, so many of us got into higher education for reasons that were purposeful. I mean, we wanted to have a positive impact on students. We were interested in a field and we wanted to push the boundaries of knowledge in that field. We wanted to somehow make the world a better place through education. And really what this framework and practice is all about is more intentionally aligning the stated values of the institution with the lived experience of the faculty, staff, and students. And so what I've witnessed over my time in higher education, and particularly I would say in the big research one universities, is a misalignment between the values that the universities say they care most deeply about and the lived experience of the faculty and the students and the staff. We say we care about student success, for example, and then when you talk in these conversations about evaluation, teaching is, you know, routinely diminished in relationship to research. Right. And so you can't say you care about faculty success and you care about teaching. You can't say, you, you know, 40, 40, 20 in terms of the percentages. 
and then say, okay, you've done 40% of your teaching, but it doesn't quite mean as much as the work that you're doing with, the, with research. So it's not just the categories teaching research and service that we need to think about. It's the weight each of those categories have. You know, what I really love about this is that it is a perfect example of Goodhart's Law. So for listeners, this is a law the Naval Academy uses, which basically states that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Mm -hmm. In other words, when we use a measure to reward performance, we are, whether we mean to or not, providing an incentive to manipulate the measure in mm. order to receive the mm -hmm. reward. The measure should be in service of the target, right? Like the measure can change. You know, we can evaluate in many, many, many different ways. But if we don't focus on the target, then we are going to just become servants to the measure. Yeah, that's right. So I'm part of a Mellon-funded project called Humetrics HSS. You can find the work that we do on humetricshss.org. And we have been really intentional about understanding how stated values map onto practices and processes. And one of the things that we found is that when you have a product-oriented idea of productivity, where you're only looking at was the book published, and you don't look at the process that went into the publishing of the book, editing, mm -hmm. reviewing, the teaching that goes into the development of the ideas, mm -hmm. then you really miss the texture of what is being done. And so what we've tried to do is find ways to recognize the process and how excellence is embodied in the process as much as in the product. You can read values out of any product. You can see, well, what do you care about? Is This is a $130 University Press book, which, you know, I've got a couple of those, and I'm very proud of them. <laughs> but, you know, they're bought by a set of libraries and then read by a very few people. What does that mean I value? I say I value openness. I say I value equity of access. Is the way that book has been published really embodying those values? I don't think so. So we've got to really think about excellence in terms of how we are enacting our values in doing the work we do. I think that this focus on the product is something that we all face as faculty members in a university because as we're doing these annual performance reports, we have to say this has been published, this has been published, this mm. has been published. I remember when I was chair, the dean was always on the lookout for people who were double or triple counting things. So the dean at that time didn't like any discussion of this is in press or this is under review or I'm currently writing this because he thought it got counted when you said you were writing it. It gets counted again when it's under review. It gets counted again when it's impressed. And then it gets counted again when it's published. I think he's not alone in this, that everyone looks at what have you published. But this goes back then to a point Jason made, namely that some of this scholarship takes a long time. Mm -hmm. It might take years and years to research, let alone even start writing a book on some topic in philosophy. And yet that process, as you put it, Chris, of doing the research is not valued by the university. They just want the product. Mm -hmm. The problem is, and this goes to Lee's point, you know, the measure becomes the target. If I have to constantly be producing, what am I going to do? 
I'm going to cut out that process as much as possible. I'm going to be sloppy in my research. I'm going to cut it back. I'm going to take shortcuts just to get the product, I was going to say, out into the market, <laughs> the market of the five people <laughs> who eventually will read it. Right. This was actually part of what we've been thinking about, because what I was hearing with our junior faculty, they would give me this amazing research project that they're working on, and they'd be like, well, that has to wait till I get tenure to do that. And it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> isn't the tenure process supposed to be the catalyst for doing the interesting work, when instead it actually becomes, oh, I'm going to do the safe thing, I'm going to get mm-hmm. this thing done, mm-hmm. and then I'll right. get tenure, and then I'll do the interesting work. Say it louder for the people <laughs> in the back, please. Exactly. And so, you know, if we're really going to live up to the purpose of tenure and promotion, which is to cultivate and catalyze really interesting work that aligns with the values we say we care about at the university, we have to empower our faculty to do that work as part of the process by which they receive tenure and promotion. And then what you need to do is make legible to the system the process. So, okay, there's peer reviewing that's happening in that process. So let's allow, like we do in the Public Philosophy Journal, we ask the peer reviewers to make a public holistic comment so that they can kind of have a micro-publication that goes with that. So it's not just, oh, I reviewed for the Public Philosophy Journal, but now I have a publication that you can see is part of that, and you can see how I've contributed to enhancing that piece of scholarship. The other thing I would mention here that we need to talk at some point about is the broader ecosystem that we operate in as institutions. So one of the main things that we think a lot about at MSU is the AAU, the Association of American Universities, and the way in which they do indicators of excellence. So, you know, they look at federally funded grants, for example, for research. Well, we know a lot of humanities and arts disciplines get grants from foundations. Right. Mm -hmm. Those are important things to recognize. They just recently started counting books in the AAU, but I really would like them to think about long-form peer-reviewed scholarship as a better indicator of the kind of work that happens. We can't just take a very narrow conception of what scholarship and research is if we're going to do justice to the wide-ranging ways in which higher education can impact the world. Mm -hmm. But I think this opens up the larger question of accountability. And maybe at MSU as a state institution, and Jason, you might have similar experiences. In fact, you said earlier that you feel accountable to the people of the state of Maine. One way that accountability is brought to bear on individuals is by saying, you know, what have you done for me lately? Mm -hmm. Like, show me what you've been producing which is counter to this more process-oriented model that you've been talking about, Chris. And I'm wondering, how does this model think about various forms of accountability and various constituencies to whom the institution is accountable, but also an individual scholar or faculty member is accountable? I think that's a really important question. And my thinking on that has to do with aligning our activities with our values. So we say that we care about you know, publicly engaged scholarship at a public research university like Michigan State. So I would argue that being engaged with a community, whether that be a rural community, urban community, local, regional, and working in a trusting environment with them does more justice to and is holding itself more accountable to the values and purpose of the institution than let's just say somebody who's written a book on, okay, we're beating up on Duns Scotus. (laughs) 
but, you know, alone in the library. You know, the impact of that work on the public and on communities is more distant. I think there is, as you were pointing out, Rick, a way in which that work does impact the public, especially if you're intentional about bringing it into the work of your life as a scholar, as a teacher. Right. But being directly engaged with communities and having the space within the institutional framework to build trust with communities, which does take time. And it's not easy to make that legible to a system that wants productivity at a certain cadence. Part of my role as a dean is also to push back against the acceleration of the institution and to say, no, okay, this person needs more time to cultivate that relationship to do the work that's actually transformational in the way that we expect it to be. I want to circle back. Why do I keep saying circle back, guys? I like a circle back. (laughs) you got to stop me with the circle backs. (laughs) Because you're a thought leader. Thought leaders circle back. You're spiraling. spiraling. I want to lean into your circling back. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I wanted to circle back to the term thought leader because I do think that, you know, if we bracket the way that thought leaders actually are in the world or the people who are called thought leaders in the world. I do think that most philosophers, most academics want to be thought leaders, really do. And even if it's not with so much of an emphasis on the leadership, but like thought contributors Mm. in a way that exhibits a kind of leadership, exhibits a kind of incentive and investment and innovative spirit, we might say. So, Chris, I'm just going to use myself as an example to ask you a question. A somewhat loaded question. Oh, boy. I've had a pretty non-traditional academic career. So I got tenure with almost no publications. I mean, I have published in academic journals, but I was able to get tenure with almost no publications. Since then, I have on principle decided not to publish in peer-reviewed journals or to try to write a book. Now, before all the philosophy bros get up in the (laughs) comments about this and are like, well, she probably couldn't publish something in peer-reviewed journals or actually get a manuscript, you're wrong. I absolutely could. (laughs) You know, I'm a good writer. I'm a good thinker. I've established myself in the field and I've done a lot of work, but all of that work has not been in print publications, right? I've done art projects. I've done documentary films. I've done podcasts. I've had a very popular blog for about 16 years. So yeah, totally standing behind my reputation. I wonder whether someone like me could get tenure at MSU. (laughs) Someone with zero dead trees in their background. (laughs) Well, you don't have zero. Because I've read some pretty awesome articles of yours. And it wasn't just because I was printing your blog, which I never said. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, it is important, Rick made this point clear, that what we call the charting pathways of intellectual leadership model, that's what we call this framework, the sharing knowledge, expanding opportunity, mentorship, stewardship framework, along with the horizon goal milestone and stepping stone goals. We call that charting pathways of intellectual leadership. And it does come with an idea of intellectual leadership as a worthwhile endeavor and one that has to be shaped by the personal search for meaning for each faculty member in dialogue with the unit and the department level and the college. So, I mean, that's something to talk more about is how do we help our chairs, for example, have these conversations with faculty who are not really always ready for the, okay, what will you be known for when you retire conversation? (laughs) But what I would say to you, Lee, is if you came to the College of Arts and Letters at MSU, 
let's just imagine you're just out of Penn State, you know, awesome dissertation on Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which I still return to, by the way, the work that you did on that as I look at questions of the role of truth in the public sphere. And you came to us and said, here's what I would like to do with my career. I've definitely got a major teaching focus in what I want to put my commitment to transforming the world through teaching into practice. But then I'm also going to be involved in public forms of scholarship that might not always align with traditional modes of scholarship. And we'd have to have a little conversation about, okay, well, what does that look like? And, you know, maybe a conversation about your blog, which has for many, many years been a great resource for many people to read and hear an authentic voice about a set of complicated issues that emerge in real time, those kinds of things we would be able to recognize as valuable from before you became, you know, a podcast rock star. So, you know, I think there may be conversations we would have to have about some things that we would want to do together that would register in a different way. But that would be a dialogue with you. Like, what is going to be the most meaningful way for you to put your scholarly practice into the world? And how are we going to recognize that you're at the milestone? So there is these milestones that have to be recognized by other people. So that's where the peer review piece comes. Mm -hmm. But we could identify people together who would be able to read the blog and say, okay, look at the sophisticated work here and give an account of that. But here's what I didn't hear you say. Yes, Lee, someone like you could get tenure at MSU. <laughs> you did not hear me say that. That's correct. I know, like, you're a dean, and so you can't... Give out tenure. <laughs> you know, but I'm asking you, give me the inside baseball from the administrative perspective, why you just can't simply say to me, yes, you would get tenure at MSU. Well, I think one of the issues is where you have gotten tenure are institutions where teaching is a priority. Correct. And so yes. that's a different kind of institution than an MSU, where research mm. has at least equal weight and often, as we've discussed, more weight. And so we would need to talk about how you're making your research profile legible to the system. Right. right. So that's really my hesitancy. Like the expectations that you had or the parameters that you were working for to get tenure at the institutions you have don't necessarily have the same weighting of research, teaching, and service that we have in a Research One university. But what I would say is that we're working hard, and I'm working very hard, to make the kind of research that you do do the work that you do in your blog, which I know takes an enormous amount of research and intentionality, and the work that you're doing with the podcast, which both from an academic standpoint, sort of researching the topics that you talk about, but even on a technical level, you know, we were talking about post-production. I mean, that's like, you know, good editing. It's attention to those details. That's a sign of excellence as well. So I think we could, within the context of conversations that we would have with you as a junior faculty... I have no doubt that you would get tenure here. I like that answer. <laughs> here at the hotel bar, Rick, Jason, and I like to pour philosophy straight into your ears. We're an independent and ad-free podcast, and we'd like to keep it that way. But the only way we can do that is with listener support. You can help us defray some of our production costs by signing up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash Hotel Bar Sessions. There are several levels of monthly donations there that you can sign up for, and every one of them helps us keep raising our glasses to deep conversations. 
If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or several one-time donations, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com where you can find links to support the podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App. And you can keep enjoying our tipsy philosophy and sobering insights. Chris, because I know you so well and we've been friends for a long time, I know that you have a particular interest in and maybe even an affinity with the practice of philosophy in ancient Greece, where it was a much more public-facing discipline. Well, discipline's probably not even the right, right word. It was <laughs> drunken party activity, including <laughs> drunken parties and throwing dead chickens over walls. And I'm wondering, maybe take your dean hat partly off and put your philosopher hat partly on. Do you feel that philosophy has a unique place in these kinds of discussions, perhaps philosophy ought to be much more of a conversation done in public, done with the public, and done for the public. Yes, I think that it's in the DNA of what philosophy is to be public. Let me put it this way. I feel like philosophy lost its way, certainly in the United States in the mid-50s, when it decided to try to be a professional discipline in line with the sciences. Mm -hmm. Philosophy is a practice. Yes, it is also an academic discipline, but ultimately it is a practice of putting your values into intentional practice in the way you live your life. It is orienting your life toward questions of what is good and what is just and what is beautiful. And you can learn the canons of philosophy in a variety of different traditions, but what you're learning, if it's successful, is to live a philosophical life, to take your life seriously as the only opportunity you have to make the world more just, and more beautiful. I taught in my Philosophy 100 class this term, Plato's Apology. And there's a point during Socrates' trial, it's actually during what I call the penalty phase of that trial. (laughs) So he's already been convicted of the crimes. He's addressing the penalty, and his opening salvo is, yeah, you could kill me, but you'll be harming yourselves more than you will me. In other words, The body politic and the community needs this thorn in their side, or as he puts it, this fly who's constantly buzzing around and biting, for the good of, well, to use an old-fashioned term, the common wheel, Mm -hmm. the common good. The work of philosophy is to reflect critically on the values of the community, to bring a perspective that is not bound up with prevailing culture, and to begin to orient ourselves to questions of the good and the just and the beautiful, not as concepts that are determined and graspable, but as ideas that are erotic in the platonic sense, that pull us toward them. And the issue is not to possess them, but is to orient your life toward them and orient your relationships to others toward those Mm -hmm. questions. I think that's the secret of Socrates' practice of philosophy, which is that by orienting your life to questions of the good, the just, and the beautiful, you're able to enact the good, the just, and the beautiful in your relationships with others. Mm. 
Well, on this topic of public-facing philosophy, you know, a few seasons ago, we had Eddie Gloud as a guest on our podcast to talk about the idea of the public intellectual. And he spoke of Emerson's essay, The American Scholar, where Emerson presented this model that we need to get deep into the books, get involved in technical issues and discussions and argue with each other, you know, among specialists and experts. But then bring that work back to the world. Mm -hmm. And we could put this in a more Marxian frame. You know, people pay us professors to have a little bit of free time to do this work. And therefore we owe it to the public to bring it back to the public. Mm -hmm. So I have a few questions about this model because I do think that it gives us an idea of how, a, it's important to think that the work that experts do is in the service of the public, ultimately. Otherwise, we're just a cult, right? <laughs> Secondly, we have to learn how to speak in the vernacular. This is something that I've repeated quite often on this podcast, that if you really understand something, you should be able to explain it to a non-expert. And third, that our purpose in society as thought leaders is to, as you just said, help the public work through questions about the good, the right, the true, and the just. So what I want to ask you is, how can that be more valued by university administrators who also have a commitment to explaining to taxpayers how professors are productive? Well, in one sense, I think the framework that we've talked about during this episode is partly the answer to that. Mm. You know, if we really orient ourselves to the mission of the university, as stated in the founding documents of the university, and for a university like Michigan State, which is a land-grant university, with all the weight that comes with that, given that the land was stolen from yeah. the indigenous populations, the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy, here in Michigan, we actually are in a position to orient ourselves to something that I think will resonate with the public. I mean, the public has helped to found these institutions. They expect us to be engaged with communities in ways that bring depth and meaning to them. And so we have a responsibility then to orient our incentives and our policies and our practices toward those activities. And that's where we get, I think, crosswise with our own values in the institution. I don't disagree. I would never disagree with Eddie on this point about Emerson. <laughs> and Emerson also recognized that knowledge is found in activities in the world as well as in books. Exactly. Which I appreciate right. deeply about Emerson. What I find sometimes I have to press Emerson back on is on this kind of atomic individual dimension of his thinking, this notion that we're somehow autonomous individuals and not bound up in an intricate relationship with communities. Now, I think a more nuanced reading of Emerson would probably find those dimensions in him as well. But there is a way in which this ideal of the autonomous individual is misshaping some of the things he says sometimes. Mm. I also want to add that universities are currently extremely short-sighted in terms mm -hmm. of the kinds of intellectuals, citizens, and honestly, workers they're producing. You know, I said to my students yesterday that I just completed my 17th year of teaching. And I would say that well over 50% of my former students are currently working in fields that did not exist when they were my students. 
And so the idea that philosophy is not productive, you know, it's, it's not producing good workers <laughs> is something that we have to give up on. And in this way, I agree with something that Rick has said many times before. It's like, yeah, let's sell out to this narrative. People should be philosophy majors because if you're just training for the jobs that currently exist, you're training for the past. You're not training for the future. So I really do agree with this new model that MSU is implementing. I'll also agree with what Jason said earlier, that university professors really need to think about themselves as servants to the, what did you say? People of the state of Maine. <laughs> Aren't we all really just servants of the people of the state of Maine? <laughs> That's going to come back and haunt me in some way. <laughs> it definitely is. When they start the recall petition. <laughs> yes. To take your point further, Lee... I do think that higher education is at an inflection point at this point. Mm -hmm. If we don't figure out a way to put our stated values into intentional practices in the way that we undertake our research, teaching, and service mission, then we're going to continue to be seen by the public as caught up in our own set of operations and really not bringing the transformative change that we promise to bring to the world. And so we really need to rethink at a ground level the ways in which we undertake our work. And that's what this Charting Pathways of Intellectual Leadership model and framework and process is designed to begin to do. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's our effort to put our weight on the side of the values we say we care most deeply about. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great model for producing thought leaders that are not Jordan Peterson. <laughs> Yay! You got it right. Yeah. So I make fun of me because I always mix up Jordan Peterson and Jordan Peterson. <laughs> you guys, we are unfortunately being given last call. But before we get out of here, I really do want, for the sake of listeners, to give Chris an opportunity to tell us where we can find explanations of this model that you've been talking about and other resources for thinking about these issues. Well, thank you, Lee, and thanks, Rick and Jason, for having me on the podcast. I would direct you to my website, cplong.org, where you'll find links to all the different things I've mentioned today. The humetricshss.org website also has a lot of information around the work of values enacted scholarship that we're trying to cultivate, including a white paper that we wrote based on over 123 interviews with colleagues across the Big Ten Academic Alliance, which is something that I'd love to have more people take a look at. We make recommendations about how to be more values enacted in our work. And for the Charting Pathways of Intellectual Leadership work, my colleagues Sonia Fritchie and Bill Hart Davidson, two associate deans in the College of Arts and Letters, and I wrote an essay for Change Magazine, and you can find the essay there, which is Charting Pathways of Intellectual Leadership. And what you'll find there is not only frameworks that we've developed, but also the way in which we're trying to put this framework into practice, not only with our tenure system faculty, but with our non-tenure system faculty and also with our staff, because we really believe that the work of the college and of the liberal arts in a major research university is about empowering all people who come in contact with our college to live a purposeful life, whether that's a student a faculty member, a staff member, we want them to find their pathway to meaning in their lives. And we want to orient all our practices and policies in that direction. Yeah. And listeners, please do comment on our Twitter or Facebook posts and 
you know, like plug yourself. We would love to know everything that's going on out there in terms of innovative, forward-thinking, public-facing scholarship. But with that, Chris, it's been so great to have you here in our fake hotel bar. <laughs> well, it was great to be with you in the actual hotel bar <laughs> yeah. in Toronto. And I am really grateful for the time to be with you. I love listening to the podcast. Every time I hear it, I am brought back to so many great conversations we've had in those contexts, be they at the bar or in the classroom or in conference settings. So thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Chris. Yeah, you are definitely the least evil administrator. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Can I put that on my t- Tombstone. That's a low bar, Lee. <laughs> All right. Good night, guys. Good night. Good night.